The scripture reading today is from John chapter 11, verses 17 through 28, and verses 32 through 44. The reading can be found on page 7 of the bulletin. Hear the word of the Lord. When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, some two miles away, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them about their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him while Mary stayed at home. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that God will give you whatever you ask of him. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one coming into the world. When she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary and told her privately, the teacher is here and is calling for you. When Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she knelt at his feet and said to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was greatly disturbed in spirit and deeply moved. He said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus began to weep. So the Jews said, see how he has loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, again greatly disturbed, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, already there is a stench, because he has been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus looked upwards and said, Father, I thank you for having heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I have said this for the sake of the crowd standing here, so that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet bound with strips of cloth, and his face wrapped in a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's 
Scripture reading continues in the Old Testament, reading first from the prophet Amos and then from the prophet Isaiah. Amos chapter 6 and at verse 4. Alas for those who lie on beds of ivory and lounge on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the stall, who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and like David improvise on instruments of music, who drink wine from bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph, God's people. Therefore, they shall now be the first to go into exile, and the revelry of the loungers shall pass away. And then Isaiah chapter 6, 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to bring good news to the oppressed, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and release to the prisoners to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vindication of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who mourn in Zion, to give them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a faint spirit. They will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord to display his glory. This too is the word of the Lord, Thanks be to God. Let's bow before God in prayer. Let us pray. Bless the Lord the reading of your holy word by the power of your spirit to inspire all scripture. Illumine our hearts and our minds so to hear your word that our lives are drawn closer to you as if you were speaking to us alone. And use the word that is now proclaimed to the same end we might hear your voice, be comforted and challenged and changed. For the sake of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. So in our sermons this fall, we're looking together at the teaching of Jesus on the subject of happiness. It's a subject about which Jesus speaks in the opening verses of the fifth chapter of the Gospel according to St. Matthew in nine statements, rather strange statements, rather paradoxical and counterintuitive statements that we call the Beatitudes. Statement number one, happy are the poor in spirit. Number two, happy are those who mourn. Three, happy are the meek. Four, happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Five, happy are the merciful. Six, happy are the pure in heart. Seven, happy are the peacemakers. Eight, happy are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Nine, happy are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. For some of us, I would guess that we're not entirely convinced that Jesus is exactly interested in our happiness as if this was of much concern to God. We generally read the word blessed in our translations of this particular passage, and that seems just a little bit more holy and happy, seems a little too light. But actually, if you go back to the original Greek, the word is makarios, and it's the normal everyday word that is used for happy. Surely God wants us to feel blessed, there's no question. But Jesus speaks here about our happiness. Even though he knows that our world is filled with tragedy and grief, and God is consumed with all of these other affairs in the whole universe that God has created yet. We have the goal to believe that God is interested in 
our happiness. And I say this to you knowing that, well, there's a giddy happiness, which maybe God is not so interested in, but a profound and a deep happiness. Surely God is interested in that. I say this to you, believing that it is no accident that Jesus speaks about this subject at the very beginning of his teaching ministry as Matthew presents it to us. It's the very first topic of business when Jesus enters the public sphere and begins his ministry. When Matthew brings all the stories of Jesus together, floating around, maybe some are written, most are in oral tradition, he puts the story together so that we can read it in his gospel. He tells us that Jesus' teaching and preaching ministry began when Jesus spoke about a happy kingdom, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. It's the same thing. Heaven is what we call a circumlocution. It's a way of speaking about God when the name of God is too precious to name. So the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, one and the same. And in Matthew chapter 4, and verse 17, Jesus comes on the scene and he says, repent. Change the direction of your life. I've got news that should cause you to change the direction of your whole life. For the kingdom of heaven, he says, is near. The kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. A community into which Jesus calls all of us and within which he wants us to belong. It's rather sort of like a parallel universe. You can't see it, another dimension of life. You can't see it. It's not visible like the nations of the earth. But he says you're to think of yourself, as it were, as having dual citizenship. You not only belong to your nation, but you belong to the kingdom of heaven. And the king of heaven, the leader of this nation, is none other than Jesus the Christ, Jesus the king. And within this kingdom, there are laws and principles just as there are in any nation here on earth. The laws in our nation are different from the laws in another nation. Some of them overlap. But wherever you go, it's going to be different. And Jesus says in the kingdom of heaven, here are the principles, here are the laws which guide my kingdom. And chapters 5 through 7, 5, 6, and 7 form what we call the Sermon on the Mount, the heart of the rules and the regulations and the principles that are to guide our lives as members of Christ's realm under his rule as our gracious king and that teaching begins with teaching about happiness, the Beatitudes at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, the first principles of living in Jesus' realm into which he invites us. And happiness is of Jesus' concern. Happiness is his first concern as he opens this grand set of teaching, which I hope that you will look at. Last week, we began to look at the first statement about happiness, blessedness, yes, but happiness, yes, as well. When Jesus says, happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Right from the outset, there's that phrase, the kingdom of heaven again. How do you enter the kingdom of heaven? Well, by being poor in spirit. What does that mean? Poor enough in spirit to know that we need help. Luke's gospel would tell us that sometimes those who are literally poor are also poor in spirit as well. There's a humility there which some of us who have wealth do not have. But we need a poverty of spirit which says, I cannot go it by myself. I need help. I need a new ruler. I need a new king. I need a new savior. And when we come to the end of our own resources and rely on his resources, 
He says, come on in. You can't pay for this kingdom. There's nothing you can do to earn it. The only one rich enough to welcome us in is Jesus himself, and he does that. Happy are those who know they are poor in spirit. You belong within this realm over which Jesus is king. That's what we looked at last week as we gathered together. This week, as we move ahead, we come to the second beatitude. Once again, a rather strange statement. This one's about grief. It's about mourning. Not just Sunday morning, but M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, mourning in terms of grief. Jesus says, happy are those who mourn. Happy are those who grieve. For they shall be comforted. Strange kind of a statement to say. Almost a contradiction in terms. If you're mourning or if you're grieving, then almost by definition, well, you're not happy. You're facing some kind of loss, some kind of pain, some kind of suffering. Something's weighing on your heart and your mind, which surely robs you of your happiness. And yet Jesus the King says that within his realm, if we see ourselves living within his realm and under his rule, this is the truth. Happy are those who mourn, for they are the ones who shall be comforted. What in the world is Jesus saying here? What are we to be grieving for? What are we to be mourning for? What sort of grief or mourning are involved as Jesus begins his teaching on the kingdom of heaven in the Sermon on the Mount here? What I'd like to suggest this morning is that when we turn to the pages of Scripture, we find at least three directions that our grief or our mourning can go in, three subjects or topics that I believe Jesus may well have in mind since he has the Scripture as a whole in mind. As he says to us, happy are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. First is what we would call relational grief, and I'll go through these one by one, and then we'll expand on them just a little bit. Relational grief, this is, well, I hate to say it, sort of normal grief when we lose somebody that we love, and it could be to death, it could be tragically, it could be in the normal course of aging and events, it could be a child going off to college or university, there's a rupture in our relationship and we're sad, we're grieving, and Jesus says it's okay to grieve. Okay to grieve. Relational grief. Then the second type of grief that I want us to think about, which is what I would call a societal grief or public grief, has to do not first of all with our everyday relationships, but with the world, the society within which we live. And we are to mourn and grieve the presence of evil in this world, the loss of innocence, the fact that there is so much pain and unfairness and injustice in the world. And this should grieve us deeply. It grieves the heart of God. It should grieve us as well, as Bob Pierce, the founder of World Vision, would put it. Our hearts should be broken with the same things that break the heart of God. And then in the third place, there's what I'll call private grief, kind of grief that has to do not with the world out there, but the whole world in here and in here, within our lives. This is mourning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, mourning the fact that we are sinners. And that hard as we try, this side of heaven, we never escape that fact. We've let Jesus down again and again and again. We've let God down again and again and again. We have denied the promptings of the Holy Spirit again and again and again, and we should mourn 
and grieve that aspect of our lives. So private grief, societal and public grief and relational grief, all I think to be part of our lives and to be seen somewhere within this enigmatic phrase that Jesus shares with us, who says that our happiness is to be found and our comfort is to be found when in fact we mourn or when we grieve. So one by one, let's think about these together, beginning with relational loss, which every single one of us has known and perhaps is facing right here and now. It could be just in the normal sequence of things, sort of expected, but when it comes, it's still painful and hard. Or it could be tragic and unexpected and simply awful that it's happening in our lives at this particular time. Someone of significance to us has gone, no longer with us. Someone precious leaves us. And even if we say, well, this is normal, this happens in the course of life, there can be a profound pain within that. What I want to say this morning is perhaps needless for some people to hear, but for others I think it's important to say nothing more profound than this. I think Jesus is saying it's okay to cry. It's okay to weep as Christians. It's okay to feel that pain and that hurt and even to scream at at God, grief does that. It creates anger within our souls if we truly grieve, if we truly mourn. And to get angry at God, and, and God is okay with that. God can handle that when that comes to us. In fact, Jesus says it's actually necessary to do. This is the only way in which we will find the comfort of God. Happy are those who mourn, who allow themselves to mourn in this kind of a way. This is a message which in some ways, perhaps it's more important for men who've been told big boys don't cry all their lives. No, no, says Jesus. There are some things which should make us weep, and they do make us weep, and it's okay to cry. But it's also a message for all of us who may have been raised or heard certain proclamations of the gospel which say that when tragedy strikes, we as Christians, we don't cry. We don't mourn or grieve because we trust that God is in charge of everything. But what I want to say is that our scripture reading from John's gospel was all about that. Jesus knew he was in charge of everything. He knew that even when his friend Lazarus died, Lazarus would come back to life. And yet he cried. He wept. King James Version, shortest version, verse in the whole of the New Testament in King James, Jesus wept. He wept. He cried. Tears. There was a sadness in his soul. No lack of faith there. That wasn't about lack of faith. It's about normal humanity and how we feel about what's going on in life. Okay to cry. And sometimes when we don't, let me assure you, our happiness will not come to us and there will be no comfort at times when we do not open the cork of the bottle and let it out. So Jesus gives us permission to do this, and stronger than that, says this is necessary for our happiness and for our comfort. And some of us need to hear that again and not interpret it through the lens of, well, if I were a real Christian, I wouldn't cry or weep. Not the case. Jesus wept. So relational grief, relational grief. Then societal and, and public grief, grief for God's world. 
We need to mourn and grieve about the state of the world, about the fact that there is so much injustice in the world, so much evil in the world, so much unfairness in the world, things people intend and then just the mess of life, about so much that's unintentional ends up in the wrong way. There are things that are just not right. And over those things, Jesus says, we need to mourn and grieve and lament. And yes, once again, at times be angry, angry enough not just to languish there in our grief, but to do something about it, to participate with God in what God is doing, precisely in the midst of those situations in which it seems that God is absent, pursuing what is just and right alongside God. So we read from the prophets, from Amos in the ch sixth chapter. He writes about a time when the people of Israel are living in luxury, they're wealthy. Things are going well. They have plenty to eat and plenty to drink. But there's a part of the society which is not right. But they don't see it. Just as we don't see everything that's going on, we see our own world. But there's another world, sometimes it's on our doorstep that we just don't see. And they just didn't see it. So Amos writes like this, he says, Alas for those who lie on beds of ivory and lounge on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the stall, who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and like David improvise on instruments of music, who drink wine from bowls and anoint themselves with the finest of oils. They're living in a land of plenty. Things are going well. And then just this line, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Joseph is another name for God's people, just as Israel is a name for God's people. Are not grieved over what's going on just round the corner, out of sight from you, but not out of sight from God. Are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph, morally, spiritually, societally. Isaiah, in chapter 61, adds this, he says, when the Holy Spirit is present, that kind of grief leads to action. This particular passage was like Jesus' mission statement at the beginning of his ministry in, in Luke's gospel. We're told that he reads this passage of scripture in his home synagogue and says, this is happening right here and now, and the implication is through him. This is his passion, this is his interest. But the passage in Isaiah 61 says this, that when God's Holy Spirit is at work, he sends us into this world that we often just do not see to be agents of God's reconciliation, to bring good news to the oppressed, bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to the captives, release to the prisoners, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of the vindication of our God to ah, comfort those who mourn to provide for those who mourn in Zion, a garland instead of ashes, oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a faint spirit. Jesus' marching orders, our marching orders as well. But it only begins when we grieve, when we allow ourselves to see what is painful and difficult and grow sad so our whole being becomes involved and what's going on in the world that God sees all the time. 
Back in the 1800s, a man by the name of William Booth founded the Salvation Army. But he did so only after he began to grieve for the poor on the streets of the city of London in England. On one occasion, he was asked about the secret of his success. This is a hundred years ago, and of course, the Salvation Army is going strong. And we as a church have found that in response to tragedies, they often the best organization to work through on the front lines. But he was asked about the secret of his success, and he responded like this. He said, I'll, I'll tell you the secret. God has had all there was of me to have. There have been men, and greater brain, been men with greater brains than I and with greater opportunities, but from the day I got the poor of London on my heart, when I caught a vision of what Jesus Christ could do, I made up my mind that God would have all there was of William Booth, and if there is anything of power in the Salvation Army today, it's because God has had all the adoration of my heart, all the power of my will, and all the influence of my life. But it began with grief. It began with a heart that was broken at the unfairness and the pain and the sorrow and the injustice of life. Grieving, though this I think is interesting, not just for the amorphous mass of suffering in the world which can overwhelm us and lead us to do nothing because, well, what can we do to deal with that? But which focuses on some aspect of that pain and that sorrow and says, Lord, is." Is this where you want me? Is this where you want us? You see this. If you're at work here, can we join you in this particular work? We as a church, we must constantly be asking that question. We as individuals must constantly be asking that question. And if there is no place in this world that breaks our heart to such an extent that we do something about it, hmm, Maybe we need to come back to Jesus' teaching again. Happy are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. They shall actually become comforters, but they'll be comforted because they know that they're working alongside the living God. So there's relational grief and there's societal and public grief. And then in the third place, there's private grief. Private grief, not just about them out there, but about me in here. All of me in here, the bits I like, the bits I don't like about me, are sin in the sight of God. One of the things that Jesus says to uh, people listening to the Sermon on the Mount when he gets to the seventh chapter is, do not judge so that you may not be judged. Do not judge so that you may not be judged. I believe that people take this verse uh, a lot of times out of context. Jesus certainly means that we must not be prejudiced in our view of others and always picking at people left, right, and center. But he's not saying that we are not to be discerning when it comes to other people. And some people just back off saying anything about anybody because of that. If you're an employer with employees, you have to be discerning and you have to make some decisions which don't feel too good at times. If you're a teacher, you have students and you have to tell them who's good and who's bad at times. If you're a coach, you have to tell your players they're not going to come on the field if they play like that again. There's a certain amount of judging that goes on. And Jesus, I don't think, is opposed to that at all. But what he does say in the Sermon on the Mount is this, that before you do that, Look to yourself. Slow down. Don't rush. You 
are in the same boat. In fact, he says it quite forcefully. You hypocrite, he says. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. There's a time to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. But whoa, slow down and look inside first. This is what Jesus calls us to do. And when we do that, we're going to find that we're going to be mourning and grieving over some of the things that we do that we wish we did not do about the times where we've let God down again and again and again. And by golly, we do need to be poor in spirit at that moment and seek God's help as never before. As I look out at society, I often think that there's a new Puritanism at work in society, in the world at the moment, a merciless condemnation of other people, and it comes from both wings, from the right and from the left. And I think it's merciless because the gospel has been forgotten. The good news of Jesus' death for us is contingent on the fact that we look inside ourselves and acknowledge that we too are sinners. And so there's a lot of shouting and screaming at them. Whereas part of our mourning is to shout and scream at ourselves. This doesn't mean we diminish our value. We are all made in the image of God. Our sin does not diminish our value to God at all. In fact, he died for us as those who sin. But it speaks the truth about who we are before we try to speak the truth to others. Perhaps you remember the story of Simon Peter on the night before Jesus was betrayed. So Jesus says to his disciples, you're all going to leave me. You're all going to run away. It's going to be a scary moment. You will abandon me. Simon Peter says, no, not me. Not me. I'm not like them. Well, maybe you know the story. Simon Peter does abandon Jesus and indeed publicly denies that he knows him. And then the cock crows he is so ashamed of himself at that moment. But we read this in Luke 22, that Simon Peter wept bitterly. Not just ashamed, but mourned and grieved over his sin. And he was the one who had become the leader of the early Christian church in the city of Jerusalem who would give his life back to Jesus, and he would fail him again. He would. That's his life. But he knew the grace and the mercy of God, and that would allow him to be a servant of Christ in the earliest days of the church. We are all Peter. We are all Peter. Happy are those who mourn, says Jesus, for they will be comforted. What a strange statement. But I think... Well, of course, I think. A true statement. Relationally, it's okay to cry. Sometimes we just need to do that. Jesus wept. Or to feel that pain or that anger and tell God all about it. Or societal and public grief. Is there anything in this world that breaks your heart in such a way that you want to be part of the solution and work alongside God to be an agent of comfort there? There's a happiness that comes from saying, Lord, I can't do everything, but I can work with you on this. And then personal grief. Digging up inside ourselves those things which need to come out, be presented to God and say, Lord, I'm sorry. And to realize that in God's grace and mercy, he is rich enough 
merciful enough to cover all our weakness and to say, you're still a member of the kingdom of God, you know. I've called you in by grace. Live out your life for me. And it's amazing, remarkable, what we can do together, what comfort he offers us, what comfort he calls us to give. Therein lies our happiness. Let us pray. Holy Father, come to us. Help us to know that repentance which you speak of, which causes us to change our lives for you, not just once, but day by day, so that we would serve you and know the profound happiness that you long for our lives. Through Jesus, your Son, we pray. Amen.